Orphan wisdom. Just a sharp scratch, says Kate, my nurse, as she lines up the vein on the back of my hand and pushes in the needle. A telltale spurt of blood shoots into the cannula, signalling that she's hit the mark. She slides the needle further in and tapes it down. Methodical and efficient, as always, she releases the tourniquet, connects the IV line, and sets the roller clamp to control the flow of chemo into my body. Kate's been doing jewellery making of late, and we pick up the conversation from last week. How's your jewellery making coming along, I ask. She tells me about her latest designs, and if she does so, she turns her head and tucks her hair behind her ears, revealing her latest pair, navy and sky blue studs encircled in silver. I love them, I say. You're a talent, aren't you? Smiling, she brushes off the compliment as another nurse joins us to double-check the drug and dosage. Name and date of birth, please, Daniel, says Kate. Any allergies? After five years of this routine, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that the humdrum of this twice-a-week procedure is keeping me alive. The Chris O'Brien Lifehouse in Sydney is a specialist cancer hospital. Opened five years ago, it provides surgery, radiotherapy and chemotherapy for every cancer known to medicine. The chemotherapy wing sees a hundred patients a day, sometimes more. We sit in the day therapy room, furnished with modern decor chairs and couches lined in rows. They face a wall-mounted screen that mutely shows a news channel depicting the latest tragedy, the newest outrage. Tornadoes in America's Midwest, riots in Caracas, presidential hush money to silence a porn star, clear felling in the Amazon. A few people hover at the jigsaw table, murmuring over puzzle pieces. Others knit or read or flick at their phone screens. Some people are visibly dying, their bodies ravaged by unrelenting malignancy as their eyes mirror their astonishment at their devastation, their ruin. We all see, imagining, projecting ourselves into their shrunken frames, their withering claim on life. Of course, we can't really know their atrophy, but our prayers and hearts reach out. Others bear the implosive signs of chemotherapy and countless other incursions made to slow or kill cancer. To put off a future nobody wants. Pain and discomfort are writ on bodies and faces. Brightly coloured bandanas are common among the women who've lost their hair, though a few display their baldness with naked pride. Some of the newly diagnosed patients weep openly as they're comforted by supporting friends and family members. Like the trees and cars and houses on the TV screen, sucked into the vortex of the Midwestern twister, they're in the maelstrom, somewhere between disbelief and terror. There's a grim determination here, tempered by an awareness that our fates are in the balance. Some of us won't make it to Christmas, Despite the legions of drugs and prayers and stay-positive attitudes, many put their faith in to boost their odds. The atmosphere is familial 
in the day therapy suites where we get our chemo. There's a cabal of good-natured Irish and Canadian nurses here. They greet each other by first name and bring humour and humanity to the suffering all around them. There are 44 suites, side by side, all of them occupied throughout the day. Clinical conversations bounce along the corridors, each of us hearing our neighbour's story as the nurses deliver our drip-fed remedies. Once in a while, we hear a bell clanging, accompanied by cheers and laughter, a ritual to mark a patient's last dose of chemo because they've grasped the holy grail. Remission. Cancer-free, for now. It's a reminder of why we're here, of what we think we want in a world where 10 million die each year from cancer. What do you want when you're not dying, not cured, not in remission? How do you proceed knowing you'll die one day of cancer, but don't know when? Keep working to pay off the house? Work part-time? Stop work altogether and live off your meagre savings while you have reasonably good health? What if you don't die on schedule and outlive your savings? And if you did take early retirement, how would you fill your days where most of what you've done for the past 40 years is work and save and raise a family? What's your purpose if you're not content with gardening and golfing and book club? More to the point, how could you be content with these occupations when there's a crying need for elders, people not just seasoned by life but individuals stirred by an awareness that they're the beneficiaries of life. These were questions I faced after five years of chemotherapy. Not sick, not in remission, definitely not dying, but exhausted. Five years of chemo and continuing full-time work were grinding me down. By the end of the working week, I had no energy, and I was spending my evenings and weekends simply recovering and sleeping to steel myself for the week ahead. If I stopped full-time work, I had enough savings to pay the mortgage and maybe last four or five years, time and space in which I could make myself more useful by dedicating myself to a raft of what I thought of as eldering projects, teaching, community building, and sustainability initiatives I'd been coaxing along in my spare time for the past decade. Once upon a time we had elders, people whose words and deeds revealed the wisdom of living and dying in according with the time-tested truth that life has limits. Elders are antimatter to the financial and economic ideologies of exponential growth and geometric progression. Instead they're aligned with the everlasting cycles of birth, bloom, maturity, ageing, and death. More than that, they bring us the old story of ancestry, whispering from across the generations, reminding us that we are life, and heirs to the generative power of death. These elders are custodians of the past, 
reminding us of what it means to be human in an age of amnesia, fixated on evermore. They remind us that our kinship and lineage is grounded in the comings and goings of countless animations reaching back four billion years. They are living testaments of the truth that life will continue even though we won't and that our lives are nourished and sustained by a non-negotiable covenant of reciprocity. But our elders are thin on the ground, casualties of a globalising culture hooked on potential and progress, on a credo that says tomorrow has to be bigger and better, no matter the cost. I felt this eldering in my bones and wondered if I had the nerve to sever my own ties to attainment and acquisition. While I deliberated the question whether to keep working, to keep slogging away in return for another paycheck to ensure my financial wherewithal, I succumbed to a seasonal bout of flu. I was never sicker or more moribund. If I needed reminding that I was vulnerable, immunocompromised, living in a body with few natural defences, the flu shook me awake and took me to ground zero. Lying low for the next few weeks, I came to a resolution. I decided to junk a cargo of long-held attachments. I served notice on my secure, superannuated job. I terminated toxic relationships. I spiked my social media subscriptions. I surrendered a stack of possessions. More than that, I resolved to turn my back on my long-term preoccupation with procuring a confident, cashed-up future, knowing that this was an addiction that kept me from my calling, my longing, my step into eldership. In my dreams, Maya, the goddess of illusion, was still cooing. Without me noticing, she'd moved in and cozied up under the doona. She was nestling like she always did, hot and warm and close. You know you need me, she said, nuzzling my neck, nipping my ear. Maya was a long time love. We'd tossed and tangled for as long as I could remember. Textbook codependence with illustrations. Maya, I said with my most earnest face, it's over. But she was grinding me, coming in hot. Maya, we have to end this, I begged, convincing neither of us. We were in a taxi, lit by neon, heading downtown. I caught the taxi driver's glance in the review. Brother, you are screwed, he said with his eyes, from here to eternity. The air was chilly as we left the cab, and I felt sobered as we walked the sidewalks of the city, heading to a dissident dance club Maya had in mind. At that hour, King's Cross was beyond description. Junkies, dealers, pimps and prostitutes plying their trade on Darlinghurst Road and everywhere adjacent. Maya hugged me close, her foxy fur feathering the nightlight. 
bellhops and bouncers smiled and nodded as we passed. But her, not me. Soon enough we came to an anti-establishment on Maclay Street. A hulking doorman demanded our credentials. Proof of our bona fides. Maya shot him a look and we were in. Admitted to a denizen where I had no cred, no qualification. The generation gap is real. Tonight's the night, she said without a trace of Rod Stewart irony. Hell's bells, I thought. I'm in deep. It's midnight and I'm stranded in the cross, somewhere between the devil and the deep blue sea. And Mayo isn't taking no for an answer. Truth be known, May's a disco queen. She's funk, she's trance, she's dub, she's ghetto. And she danced with a reckless abandon that drew everybody to her like a magnet. I slipped away to the bar to consider my options. Three seconds later, I was out the door, fleeing Main Street, heading for the hills, somewhere Mayer had no purchase on me. Six months after I'd broken up with Mayer and stopped working, I joined the local ranks of retired folks, most of them baby boomers, in the over 55s club. Expecting them to be cheerful and grateful at their good fortune, I was astonished at the resentments they harbour. This is the generation that never went to war, and thanks to the counterculture of the 60s and 70s and the reforms of the Whitlam government of the era, it was the first cohort in Australia to get free love, the pill, free tertiary education and free health care. Twenty years later, just as they were taking the reins of power and privilege, the socially and economically progressive Hawke and Keating government introduced industrial and financial reforms that have profited the nation ever since. Australia, the lucky country, has seen 26 years of unbroken economic growth. A land blessed by peace, prosperity and mineral wealth, it's a social and economic miracle with a robust democracy a healthy fourth estate, and ever-rising property prices. In the decade since the global financial crisis, one that coincided with the boomers' peak earning capacity before retirement, the stock market, where most of their superannuation is invested, has risen 94%. In other words, the boomers have done well. So I was unprepared for their litany of grievances, especially concerning their wealth, but also, more predictably, their complaints about the decline in morals and law and order. Their complaints are heard in coffee shops and golf clubs and on talkback radio around the country. Some context. Current historically low interest rates mean that boomers' nest eggs aren't growing as promised. The magic of compounding interest isn't so magical when central banks have set cash rates at somewhere between 0 and 1%. Also, a flattening property market means their million-dollar homes, tax-free when they sell, and their tax-friendly negatively geared investment properties aren't skyrocketing in value, as they have for the past 30 years. But it's not all bad news. 
Australia's dividend imputation laws mean the cheques from their share portfolios come tax-free. In Australia's general election of 2019, the Progressive Labor Party promised to reform dividend imputation and negative gearing rules that would have removed the tax advantages conferred on people with shares and investment properties. Labor's plan was to redirect the extra tax income to fund more schools and hospitals for the greater benefit of all. The plan would effectively transfer billions of dollars from a smaller, wealthy cohort, largely conservative voters, to a larger, less wealthy group of people, largely progressive voters. The proposal seemed like smart politics and an opportunity to assist younger, less wealthy people. The conservative incumbent Liberal National Coalition government promised to leave the tax rules in place and ran an effective scare campaign against Labor's plan that saw the Conservatives return to government for another term. They won government thanks to the ageing, retiring, boomer generation who voted for their own continuing financial self-interest. On the first day of trading after the election result, the Australian Stock Exchange saw its biggest rise in 11 years, adding $33 billion to its market capitalisation. Banks, mining and property companies, where the boomers are invested, were among the biggest winners. Most of all, retiring boomers resent ageing and the physical encroachments of growing old. In my neighbourhood, pelotons of middle-aged and older men wearing lycra rise early to cycle hundreds of kilometres each week. The 24-hour gymnasiums and yoga studios and bushwalking clubs are replete with grey-haired people pushing away their evanescence. Of course, all this activity is admirable and even desirable in the interests of public health in an age of ballooning obesity and heart disease. But it feels more like muscular denial. Sequestered in well-heeled suburbs, cloistered in their holiday houses by the coast, cosseted together on their over-55 travel tours, they've all but shrugged off any sense of duty to the younger generations behind them. They will not give up, or give way, or give over to those who need them most. Sure, they might be helping out the kids and the grandkids with financial legots into property and doing a day or two babysitting. But for the most part, they are in absentia, unavailable to legions of young people seeking support and sustenance from a generation that's long been on the take, on the receiving end of their dumb good luck, who should by rights have learned the rights and rituals of elderhood. This sounds like censure, but it's not meant to. Most boomers and the remnants of the preceding pre-World War II generation are uninitiated individuals with no cognizance of the old story that they are heirs to the death-begetting, life-begetting 
life cycle or the law of limits or the covenant of reciprocity that requires giving away all they've been given, including, especially, any wisdom we might have acquired along the way. Some older people are waking up to their elderhood, but if the vanishing of elders is any measure, it's a rare epiphany. For those who can hear young people's longing for wisdom, they recognise it as a petition to step away from their cosy retreat and into servant leadership. Stephen Jenkinson calls this new awakening among our too few elders, orphan wisdom. It's an orphan because it has no lineage, no ancestors. <laughs>